session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolak, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, the studio number 310 310- Four four one zero five five five. So uh, recently, maybe you've seen this study that had come out, got a lot of attention, which was related to depression and some research looking at many studies that found that there might not be a link between serotonin or low serotonin causing depression. And so this is a theory that's been around for, I think, since the 1960s, that one of the causes of depression is low levels of serotonin. And that's why many of the medications that are used to treat uh, depression, antidepressants, tend to deal with serotonin. So we have SSRIs, which are um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which essentially means that in the synapses in the the space between the brain cells or the neurons where they communicate um, this allows for there to be more serotonin that remains in the synapse because less of it gets absorbed uh, by these reuptake cells Um, the exact mechanisms i'm not explaining so well but that's essentially what is going on as far as my understanding of it there's more serotonin in the neurons so more serotonin essentially um, in the brain less depression and that's you know it is simplified but that is at times the way it's been looked at and that's when we hear terms like a chemical imbalance which we often hear related to mental illness this is usually what we're talking about these type of neurochemicals neurotransmitters that were assumed to be the cause of mental illnesses including depression so the thinking was if you have a low level of serotonin causing depression. If we increase the serotonin in your brain, you're going to no longer be depressed. And that's what these SSRIs did. And they have helped many people, probably over the years, millions of people. But research does find that they don't help most people. Uh, Most people don't get better. And so this study looked at many studies over the years. I think they focused on 17 studies doing a meta-analysis, and they found that it doesn't appear that depression is caused by low levels of serotonin. And so this got a lot of buzz. And so I wanted to talk a bit about what this might mean, but also what it might not mean, because we don't want to jump to conclusions. Uh, about what this means or or go too far in the other direction. It does seem like, well, it was a theory. It was a try to an understanding of what was going on, but it might be missing a lot of what actually is going on. So to begin with, depression is a very complex human experience. And I say it in that way because often we think of it as a mental illness, like depression is one thing, but it does seem more likely that what we call depression is actually many different things. 
that it's not just one diagnosis of depression or major depressive disorder that is what we're really experiencing or seeing in the human uh, experience, but it's actually many more things. It's not just one thing. So that itself is really important because it could be caused by a variety of things. When they look at the genetics of something like depression, sometimes you think, oh, is there a depression gene? And it's probably more like there's thousands of genes that all have a minuscule impact on the genetic side of things. And of course, environment and experience and all that has a big impact as well. But depression itself is likely a very, very complex, complicated, multifaceted thing. And to try to have just one explanation for it itself might be limiting or missing the point of of what we're talking about. It's like if we're talking about uh, problems in a relationship and we just look for one cause because we're saying it's just dysfunction. Like if you just had a relationship dysfunction and thought it was all one thing, you're of course going to oversimplify and any theory trying to explain it is going to miss so much or might be oversimplified in a way that makes it so you don't actually tell yourself anything. So one thing we, we can learn from this study is it does seem like this serotonin theory is definitely, could be that serotonin has an impact, but definitely is not going to be explaining most of depression or help us understand it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean antidepressants won't help people. For one, oftentimes treatments, medications have helped people and they don't really know the mechanisms or they even had the mechanisms wrong of how it was helping. So we come up with a certain treatment, sometimes serendipitously, they see that something is helping certain people and they say, oh, it seems like people who take this medication are, let's say, not having headaches or not having this experience or whatever it is. And then they use it as a treatment, but oftentimes they don't know how it works. So it's still possible, even though the theory is wrong, that it's not the the serotonin itself was the cause of depression and these drugs were increasing serotonin. Even I saw uh, that in some studies they find that over time it leads to less serotonin in the brain. So that itself is puzzling. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that uh, because the theory is wrong that antidepressants can't help people, that it can't be something that alleviates depression. Now, one thing for me, it's interesting, I've mentioned this before, about antidepressants as a name, or if we look at the branding, it's really amazing branding because you have depression, take an antidepressant, seems pretty straightforward. So if you hear that, you just assume that's what you should take. Whatever you have, the anti of that medication seems like the right choice and it's going to help you. But we find that it, again, doesn't help most people. Some studies say 30%, 35%, if that, if people get improvement from the medication. So most people don't get help, even though it's called an antidepressant. And so this also, for me, is important to look at other types of treatments. And in a few weeks, I'll have a therapist on my show who is um, a ketamine, uh, a, a therapist who does ketamine-assisted therapy, meaning that when people get ketamine treatments, um, they help them through that process, through that journey, uh, to not only be there as they go through it, but also what happens with things like psychedelics and medications like that is not that it just cures you of whatever's going on. It can be very beneficial on its own, but it can open you up and create uh, understandings or different connections that then allow you to um, possibly come to new understandings, new conclusions, new ways of dealing with old memories that you maybe could not before. 
Because my understanding, what I'm seeing based on this is very preliminary to a degree, is that when we look at brain dysfunctions, mental illnesses, it's often less about specific chemical type of imbalances, but issues related to connectivity. And so I think one of the reasons why we have such a hard time understanding the brain, if you look back several decades ago and people's projections of where the fields of psychiatry and neuroscience would be as far as our understandings of the brain and mental illness, they were far more optimistic than what we've actually seen. They thought we would easily predict and explain and map out all the different illnesses and disorders and be able to fix them essentially because of this understanding. But what we're seeing is that the brain is far more complex than we could have even imagined, that it is not so simple to just think of it as a bunch of parts and then this part does this, this part does that, let's see what's broken and fix it. It's so much more complex and the interconnectivity of it all makes it so much harder to understand. And so often what we see, and we see this with psychedelics, is that they can have a huge impact in the connectivity. When people are under brain scans and they give them psychedelics, you do see this increase in connectivity. So what is likely possible is that now that there's these new connections that are being made in the brain and the person is experiencing, that through therapy you might be able to even more have an impact positively. And so it can be important to have therapy along with the medication, as is always the case, uh, to help make it more beneficial. We're often looking for that magic pill that's going to make everything better, make everything okay. But the complexity of issues like depression, mental illness, whatever you've been going through, also the ways you've been fixed in your ways of thinking that are hurting you in ways you might not even recognize, uh, that will likely involve more than just taking a medication because if you take the medication, you likely will go back to how you were before. So I also wanted to introduce here psychedelics and the very promising areas of research that we now see with psychedelics. I would recommend Michael Pollan's work. I've talked about two of his books on the show, um, How to Change Your Mind, and This is Your Mind on Plants. And recently on Netflix, there's a four-part documentary that he helped create that's related to psychedelics and looking somewhat into the history of psychedelics and also specific ones like psilocybin and MDMA and seeing uh, the research and that's being done. And also in that, you see people going through treatments, taking the psychedelic medicine and then receiving some kind of therapy. Oftentimes there's someone in the room with them as they experience things, go through things. MDMA, which is uh, the, the drug that is usually thought of as ecstasy or the main drug that's in ecstasy, which was a common party drug, a rave drug, has been shown to be very effective in treating PTSD, which affects so many people, especially combat veterans, for example. And they're doing lots of, lots of research on that. And what is important to note here is that when we hear psychedelics, or I can say even for myself, drugs, and when we hear, you know, shrooms, and you hear MDMA, ecstasy, ketamine, my association, even still it's been changing, is usually quite negative with these drugs and substances. And so 
This has lots of reasons. One is myself personally not being someone who recreationally uses drugs. I have this association with certain drugs that are labeled in a way not good or bad because they were illegal. And I recognize that as much as I try not to think of it that way, that it has an impact. It's interesting to see how people's opinion of marijuana has changed in recent decades and the legalization of it here in the United States, which is itself a complex issue of what does it mean that it's legal in states, but not federally. But nonetheless, there has been a change and it's definitely changed mindsets. And of course, uh, it goes both ways. The mindsets were changing, which led to the acceptance of changing the laws. But also when we find out a drug is legal, we feel very differently about it. And this is why I've always thought it was interesting when I work with families and sometimes they're like so scared and shocked and worried that their child, their teenager, is now trying marijuana, but they themselves drink alcohol all the time and see no issue with that, even though physically probably mar- uh, alcohol is worse for you and can have worse consequences in a certain way. Not to say that marijuana is completely safe, especially for a teenager. There are some risks if they have some predispositions. But nonetheless, it shows how much we're affected by what's legal and what's not, and that makes one okay and not uh, the other one not okay. And so psychedelics have had a very interesting history where uh, they were discovered and being studied for decades, but then, especially in the United States around the 60s, there was you know, these huge movements that were going on and it felt like a threat to the powers, uh, the, the American government and people who were trying to keep a certain status quo. And it seems that that had a big impact in it going from something totally legal to something completely illegal with no acceptable uses and could not be researched. And so for several decades, psychedelic research essentially disappeared or went very underground because it could not be legally done. But now in recent decades, we're seeing this movement back towards psychedelics. And so for me, actually, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan was a big book for me in the sense of opening my mind a bit more, uh, I guess pun intended, to psychedelics and the the potential beneficial uses that it actually might be a big direction for us to go to in the future of mental health, psychiatric medicine, uh, mental health treatment in general, that there's a lot of promise there. And so I say this just to hopefully open your minds to a bit if you're someone listening and you're skeptical about psychedelics, I completely understand that. They can have certain associations, but this is where we have to recognize that sometimes the associations we have are coming from the the years of hearing certain things that not that aren't necessarily fully true, just like for decades we keep hearing chemical imbalance, chemical imbalance, and I still hear people say that, that term very often, even mental health professionals sometimes, that it's a chemical imbalance that this person has, but we're seeing that we heard it so many times, it feels like it has to be true, just like we've heard that if you take psychedelics, you're going to like go crazy and lose your mind. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case for almost all individuals. And so I hope people will just be a little bit more open to it. I will continue to talk about them. I will have a therapist on the show in a few weeks to talk about ketamine and other psychedelics and how ketamine-assisted therapy works and looks like. Again, just because I'm saying psychedelics can be good, it doesn't mean taking it in any context, any time is, is going to be helpful or uh, is totally safe. You do want to be careful with these things, but at least to be open to recognize that there might be treatments that you might not have considered because you had certain associations with them, 
but that might be helpful for you. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, hi. Thanks for calling. Hello, Dr. Holakui. I'm calling on behalf of my, one of my friends. She has a son. Uh, he's almost 20 years old, and he's very healthy, smart. Last year, uh, he met online with an American girl and gra- online. And gradually, the girl, unfortunately, she's the same age as well. Gradually, she brainwashed uh, the son, the, the boy, and uh, caused he even quit his college. And uh, even three, I think three months ago, he moved uh, with her from his state to the other state that she is, you know, lives in the other state. So the problem is now she's pushing him to work online and give him uh, give uh, his money to her because maybe she needs money. And uh, the big problem is she he cut her connection, his connection with his parents. So they are very concerned about him. They know their uh, they research and they found out uh, even uh, the, to connect to the girl's parents. So they talk to them, but they don't care. They're kind of uneducated family. They don't care. They know that even where they live, but, but they didn't tell the parents, the, the boy's parents. So they are very concerned what to do. He, connect, he contacted with them very rarely, very, you know, after a few days, very small response, give to their mom and dad. That's it. And I'm just calling you find out what they can do, what is your suggestion, if they had any chance to talk to him or if they had chance to even at least back to their state, to their family, how they have to talk to him um, that, and let him know that his way is not okay and doesn't benefit for him because he caught studying, he quit college, he doesn't even connect, like I said, connection with his parents, and they are very concerned, even they're concerned about where he he lives, what they do, you know. Yeah, well, Um, you know, the the difficult thing here is, of course, I'm talking to you about this other family and then their child, you know, so it's a very complicated situation to try to um, figure out how we can help them. Uh, because I, one, I have to ask you questions. You might not have all the answers, which is okay. But also, even what can you do? I'm, I'm not I'm sure. I'm very close to them. Yeah. But maybe I know you can you can ask me. Well, but well, here's the thing. I mean, when you're saying they have very limited contact with him, uh, or almost no contact, it's very you know how much can they do? He's obviously technically an adult, so they're uh, what they can't control him or, or get him to do something on their own. What I would recommend is if they do, when they do talk to him, they have to try to connect with him more than just tell him what he's doing is wrong. Because if they just try to, you know, tell him how wrong he is, how bad he's doing, uh, you know, or the decisions he's making, how bad they are, it's probably not going to make a difference. He already knows what they think. I, I don't know. Do you know what happened leading up to him not talking to them? 
when you say they don't have really a relationship. I'm oh. guessing there was some, you know, he was talking about moving or something was going on and they were against it. But what, what happened in there? Um, uh, they, no, they, they were very good, healthy family, happy family. Like, a, you know, as a normal couple, sometimes okay. parents fight, sometimes not. It's just normal. You know, and uh, he was doing well. Um, you know, um, he was doing well anyway, and he was uh, online actually uh, studying in the college, doing the uh, the college. And um, like I said, all of the sudden, or maybe not all of the sudden. Well, that's that's what I'm saying is, and that's where maybe you don't know all the details. Where I, I I would understand what happened in their relationship that it broke down. To him not wanting to talk to them anymore so something happened he, he 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 doesn't talk they they assume that the girl the girl doesn't allow him and doesn't let him to talk to them because she fears maybe he tell his parents the address or whatever but he message but very short so even they don't know if he responded the text message or the girl responded them because it's very 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 short okay. and three months ago he left he left the house no he didn't have any arguing with, with his parents they were good they're the loving family and uh, they care about his their son and the first son he has the other two younger sisters okay and, uh, i mean i i just would try to i mean it does seem strange if he just one day left without anything going on between them or you know, it's possible he just fell in love or, you know, I know you're saying brainwashed. It's a very strong word. We don't know what's going on. If he's, we don't want to put it all on her, that what's happening. We don't know what's happening in their situation. But I would want to understand what happened in their relationship. Were they telling him to stop this relationship? Were they telling him they don't approve of her? Um, you know, those, those kinds uh, of things. Yeah, they don't approve her because they already met her. Or talked, I think, talked with their parents, and they found out how um, how they are. You know, the parents uh, um, uneducated, even they don't care. Um, like children study, they don't care anything. They don't care even if their daughter brainwashed uh, and take the money from the other person. And, um, and well, I mean, I know you're saying brainwash and uh, take the money. I don't know what's going on. It could be. If they're in a relationship and they're in love, they they're sharing their money. I mean, that's what people do. I'm I'm not saying it's the right situation. I'm just saying that we don't know enough about it to say anything about them. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is not just do they approve or not. Did they communicate that to him? There must have been some type of communication with the son before he left. If if not, that would be surprising. They do. They they have communication, but you know, in in. In these um, years, I, I think more than, most of teenagers, they just playing games, and most of the time they were in their room, even, uh, you know, um, and uh, of course they wanted him to be together, be, be, you know, have more uh, um, spend time together, but, you know, for these uh, generation. Most of kids, most of it, not all of them. Okay. Most of kids. I understand, but I'm trying to. You're right, but but oh. most, but the, the, there's some. Like I, I'm just trying to understand. There's no communication. Just one day he left. I, you're right. Kids. No, no, will... no, 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 not not just one day. I mean, gra la, since last year that he met this girl online, yeah. they had connection with the girl. They found out, and mother and father 
they um, even advise him and it's not okay even if you want to you know contact just um, at least uh, don't quit because he I think he told them that I want to quit I don't want to study then he finally quit his um, college and gradually I assume that he brain she brainwashed him finally he traveled to the other state, to that state that she lived okay. three months ago. I mean, so you keep... I kn- not one day. I, I didn't... Not, I don't... I know. My, my point is it's not one day. You said all of a sudden. I'm trying to see that the, the parents also could try to look at... Uh, I'm not saying it's the parents' fault what's going on, but if we're they're trying to understand what they can do, it's important to try to understand what happened in their relationship with their son. And I know you keep saying brainwash, but I, I don't know if it's brainwash. People... When people get married, I wouldn't say they're. It's a brainwash. They might fall in love. So I'm not sure. I'm not even saying I approve of their relationship. But if we keep focusing on just the brainwash, and that she's like this evil person, and that their son is not even there, we might be missing a big part of the story. Especially that they're trying to have a relationship with their son, and they have to try to understand how did he decide to make this decision. We can't just put it all, a hundred percent on her that he's there. And so. Looking at the relationship, that's why I was asking you. I'm sure they. It seems like they didn't approve from the beginning of this relationship. Yeah, they didn't approve. They didn't approve because they they already even I don't know met, but for sure they talked to their parents and they found that even how you know. You keep saying that part, but they, they met. Did they meet her first? I, I doubt they talked to the parents first. That doesn't make sense to me. They probably talked mm-hmm. to the, met the girl first, right? The girl doesn't show up. The girl, even they don't know how when when uh, where she lives. So, but at least they found their um, their con- the connection, the contact number of the parents, and they had to contact them. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, they don't care. Okay. They, they several times they contacted them. Even we don't know where is my son. Uh, you know, living right now. But we know that my son lives with your daughter. They didn't any. They didn't give them any right answer and they didn't like to tell them where does uh, where they live they knew that but they didn't like to, mm-hmm. them, to tell them okay and so my question is if any chance they get any chance maybe he back here even for a short time to maybe to take some stuff and then back over there uh, how they have to talk to him uh, to benefit uh, you know uh, him, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's really. It's a very difficult, and I hope they will get that chance. I, I would. Uh-huh. I would say more than anything, they have to try to understand him. And so, if they, you know, approach with the mindset of just like she's the only problem, or it's all her fault, they might not really get to understand where he, what he's going through, what where he's coming from. Because if they just attack her, more than likely she's he's just going to defend her. He's going to get defensive. So, you know, if you attack someone and say your partner is so bad, they're going to say, no, like it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm in love with her. She's changed me. She's made me real, you know, whatever he's going to say, even though there might be bad things too that he recognizes. But if you attack so strongly, it's going to really just push him away more than anything. So I would say try to understand him. What is he going through? Talk about, you know, they can say they obviously they miss him. They were concerned that he he moved and want to make, see how he's doing. 
I, I'm still trying to, you know, as I said, I'm talking to you, you, it seems like you know a lot because you're close, but I don't know all the details because I, I don't understand what happened in their relationship. Mm-hmm. It would just seem strange to me if, you know, I know you're saying it wasn't all of a sudden, but then he decides to move. I'm sure there was something happening between them that they were not approving of this relationship even because you said they they called yes, the girlfriend I knew, now I knew that they don't approve and they and, and he already knew that his parents uh, don't approve he didn't yeah. approve i know that well the, and this is what happens a lot so obviously we can't just pretend like we don't have an opinion obviously they have a, an opinion a preference for their son but then if if they did push too hard i don't know how they were with him it sometimes will push the person towards whoever they're dating. So I, I've seen it happen so many times that they think, I'm going to convince them to break up with this person, but they sometimes will push them more towards that person. Because if he really liked her and was having feelings for her, I know you keep saying brainwash, but if we try to understand, it could have been much different from that. He might have really liked her. Maybe it's his first real love, this type of intensity, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And his parents keep yeah. saying, you can't talk to her, you shouldn't be with her. He might go more towards her because he's in love with her. So uh, my point is not to say, again, I, I don't know enough about their relationship to say it's good. I don't think it's good if it made him stop doing things like going to school and, and, and certain things. I wouldn't recommend those things to anyone. But if the parents want to try to reconnect with him or connect with him, they have to try to understand him more than just talk about how wrong or bad what he's doing is and how bad she is and blaming it all on her he went there too right we can't just say brainwash and he's just this innocent boy and she brainwashed and that's we don't know the situation i don't know enough to tell you that that's what's going on you're you're right even um recently that i talked to them they said maybe he needs uh, maybe our son needs to experience independence and uh, yeah. m- maybe that's why he just want want to go, you know, left the house, and he doesn't want to be with family. Yeah, and, yeah, it's you know, you know that's and I don't again we we know very limited amount about what's going on, but and that's why I'm saying they have to also look at what was the relationship relationship with him like. Were they I don't know if they were controlling or giving him space to be independent himself at home. And then so even more, he might have felt this desire just to get away and, and get out. But I would want them to look more closely at their relationship. I understand they're very worried about him. They feel a panic of they just want him back and they want to know how he's doing and they want him out of this relationship. But if they can spend some time looking at what happened in the relationship, let's see how we got distant from him. Were we putting pressure on him? Were we too strongly talking about this relationship and wanting him to break up and end the relationship and so it felt like it was either us or her and he chose them uh, chose her um, you know I would want them to look at that and when they have a conversation if they get that chance to talk and communicate to try to show they want to understand what happened to him not just talk about how bad she is and how bad this relationship is they, they have to try to talk to him as like a, a person you know as an equal as someone who's also at the end gets to make his own decision and try to focus on not just getting him to break up but their relationship with him how can we have a relationship with Uh you that even if he wants to go there that say how is it that we can still have a relationship with you if he wants to stay with this person because most important for us is that we love you and want to have you in our life and be there for you so to focus the point point is they they have to show him that how 
they understand him and care about him. That, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, just to tell him it's wrong, they've already done that. He already knows they think it's wrong, so it's not telling him something new. But I would try to focus on connecting with him, creating a relationship with him, and having that way you can have a conversation. You know, I, I work with families all the time where the you know the parents are telling their kid you can't date this person or you can't marry this person and then when you actually talk to that person alone they themselves have a lot of worries about the relationship but they never tell their parents because they know their parents are just so against it so they close the door to be there for him so even if he's worried about the relationship he's not going to tell his parents because he already knows they're so against it so it does seem like the relationship right now is in a very weak place but it doesn't mean it can't be built back but it's only going to build back if they're willing to show him they understand him and as i said i would recommend to them to try to look at their now that they have time uh, with him not in their as communicative with them to see what is going on in their relationship or what did happen in their relationship with him we didn't you know you you said all of a sudden and then you realize okay it's not all of a sudden so how did we okay. get here trying to understand that a little bit better too Maybe, maybe, maybe it was more than even one year that they knew each other, but it was online. Okay. And then contacted each other, but still, with the, the the girl was in the other state, and yeah. he was in the other state. Yeah, I mean that you know that maybe they and who knows it's, uh -huh. these things can be very complicated with long distance. How well they actually knew each other, and you can make it even more idealized when you do that. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's a lot of things, a lot of factors, obviously, but for them. The, you know, as the parents and trying to create a relationship with him, the most important thing is focus on the relationship with him more than just getting him to do judging. something uh -huh. and judging. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Thank you so much. Sure. Dr. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Nice talking Thank to you. you. Have a good day. You Thanks. too. Bye -bye. All right. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, the caller was um, talking about an, an issue that does come up in families often, in Iranian families, maybe even more, because we tend to be more involved with each other's lives, uh, but about when you have a child who's in a relationship that is one you don't approve of. So, you know, of course, you're going to care about your, your kids and all the decisions they make in their life. But as I was saying, we tend to, in Iranian families, care a little bit or get too involved or think we should have more of an involvement. Uh, this is, well, some level we can say, a cultural issue or cultural differences that people can have. But nonetheless, it's the result that the more involved you're going to be, the more that you are going to uh, think that you should have an input or that your input is going to, to matter or to affect what you, your kids are going to do. So the first thing, as I was talking with the previous caller, that's very important to keep in mind is that we have to recognize that we can only have a minimal impact in what our, our kids are doing. And really, we, we probably only should in the sense that although you care, although you want the best for them, you have to recognize that it's not your place to make those decisions for them. And so what I, I see so often in Iranian families and why I was bringing it up with, with that caller is that We'll have a situation where the individual is in a relationship, the child's in a relationship, adult child, and the parents might not agree with that relationship. So they have an opinion, and you can't control that. You will have a feeling about who you're, you know, about anything, you'll have a feeling about it. And of course, something you care more about, you might even more have a stronger feeling. But you, let's say you don't approve of who your, your child is, is dating. 
Now, depending on your relationship with them, that might come up in a conversation. But even still, my recommendation would be to not present it in a way of, this is wrong, you have to break up, or I don't approve. Um, but more of a, let's have a conversation. I can share some of my concerns with you. And even more importantly, I want you to tell me about that the person, the relationship, what's going on. Because what we often see is that parents will think, well, I know, and I'm going to tell them to stop and to, to end this relationship. And so a few things are wrong with that. One is that you know the right and wrong relationship for someone else, including your child. And sometimes people think, oh, it's my own son or daughter. Of course, I know. But no, that doesn't mean that you have the right answer for them of who uh, they should be with. So just because you have an opinion doesn't mean that opinion is right. Even if you think I'm older or I know things or this is my child, so I know them, uh, that none of those things are necessarily true. And you have to have that understanding that although I have an opinion, it doesn't mean it, it's the right one or I know even what to do. But even if you did know, let's say if you were you're sure you had some crystal ball or you had some tests that could tell you that if people are a right match for each other, even still, there is a big question of should you even tell someone and make someone do something that you want or make that decision for them. So if your adult child is dating someone, what is important is to give them the experience to, of course, even choose who they're going to date to begin with and then choosing to stay in that relationship or not. That is their decision to make. Sometimes we have this mindset as parents that my job is to prevent pain for my kids. And so if I see something might not be good, I have to stop them from that. But that's not actually your role. You're supposed to help them grow. And growing involves one, making the decisions themselves and then dealing with the consequences of those decisions. That's a big part of life and of growing up. And if you just think it's about preventing their pain, then you're going to take away these opportunities for them to actually grow. So first, you don't even know if you are right or wrong, even if you feel strongly about it. And secondly, even if you were somehow to know you were right, it doesn't mean you necessarily are supposed to tell them what to do. Is that even what a parent is supposed to be doing really at any age, but especially when your now child is an adult themselves, giving them that space to make the, the decision. The other thing that I see happening often is that when you are so strongly against the relationship, you forbid the child. You know, I've seen all degrees of this from just slight disapproval to they can't come over to we won't ask about them to we forbid you to disowning. We see a whole range of tactics and degrees of disagreeing with the relationship. So you do those things, let's say, but what you're also doing usually is not making them make a decision in any way. What you're just doing is damaging your relationship with your child. And so when we look at what you are doing with your child, the thing that is most in your control is the relationship you have with them, not the decisions that they make. And it's your responsibility to focus on the relationship, not the decisions that they make. So yes, you can't even control the relationship completely because of course they're the other person in it, but you have obviously a huge impact on how your relationship with your child is going to play out. And my recommendation is to focus on that aspect of things more than on what is it that they're doing and trying to control especially what they are doing. And if you focus on the relationship, and I don't say this to, to find a roundabout way to still get your way, but if you focus on the relationship, you then actually will have 
more of an influence in the decisions that they do make. Because if we look at who we take advice from, it's not just based on credentials and expertise and if the person knows what they're talking about. That can be very important, the competence we see in that person. But a very big part of that is also the trust that we have and the relationship you have with that person, whether or not you're going to take their advice. So yes, you hopefully will will want someone or you will want someone who's competent in what they're talking about. But what's very important is the relationship that you have. So parents all the time will tell me that, you know, I told my my son or daughter to do this or do that and it's good advice but they don't do it and so first of all just because you say advice doesn't mean someone can do it even if they wanted to but nonetheless because you're giving good advice doesn't mean you are going to have that advice land because the other person if they don't like you if they're mad at you if they have a bad relationship with you they might even be less likely to do the thing that you say oh you want me to do this okay i'm going to do the other thing just as a way of getting back at you or or getting uh, some kind of revenge or rebelliousness towards you, I'm going to do the opposite of what you want me to do. So just focusing on the goodness of your advice is not enough. You have to also look at the relationship you have with that person. And if we're talking about your child, focusing on that relationship. And so if you have a better relationship with your child, then they will likely communicate with you about things. These are This is something I'm dealing with. This is what I'm going through. As I mentioned, when I work with families, and, and I've seen it in personal experiences, but also in therapy experiences, when you see that the parents are so against it, where this is, you know, this person's so bad, and we know, and we told you, and this is the wrong relationship, and then you talk to that, they talk together, the other person, of course, the child is defending, no, the person is so good, they're not the way you see them, they're the best thing that happened to me, I love them, I want to be with them. All those things, they, they're going to be very defensive when you attack them. But often I've then talked to that person alone, and then they share the concerns they have about the relationship. Actually, yeah, we've been fighting a lot, or I'm worried about this part, or about this thing. And sometimes it's even the things the parents have mentioned too, or it could be other things. But because the parents are so against it, and they don't want to just give in to what their parents are saying, and the natural reaction is to react rather than just take what the person is saying, they they will fight back when they have the conversations. So what I'm suggesting is if you actually leave more space for your child to make their own decisions, which I think is the right thing to do, but then also within that, giving them that space to make the decision so they feel more comfortable talking to you, now you actually can be more helpful in the decisions they do make. Not that you get to control them, not that you get to make them, because I know for a lot of people, they might hear that and think, oh, good, I can just try to get the relationship good, and then I can get them to break up with, you know, whoever it is or make the decision I want. But I'd hope you focus on the relationship in and of itself because it's the right thing to do. But just being aware that the more you are connected to someone, the more positive impact you can have on their life. They'll come to you and say, you know what, mom or dad, I'm, you know, this has been happening in a relationship. And again, don't jump up. See, told you, you should have broken up. I knew this wasn't right. Explore it with them. What's, what's going on? Tell me what you think. How are you working on it, what are your feelings about it, make it a conversation, not a lecture, that you're going to tell them what they should be doing or the right thing to do. And to begin with, even if you don't approve of the relationship, rather than going through your list or your reasons for why, ask your child to tell you about what they like about their partner. Tell me about the relationship, whatever they want to get into, however much they're willing to open up. What do they like about them? How did they meet? 
you know, what do they like? And then you could even ask, are there any concerns you have? Anything that worries you about the relationship, about the future, about working out? And if you have a good relationship, your child is much more likely to have that conversation with you. And then you'll learn more about what's going on, why they're in that relationship. And you might even help them in making the decision with they, which they ultimately have to make for themselves. So the notion that if my child is dating someone I don't like, how do I get them to break up to me is the wrong place to start. You should start with, I am someone in my child's life. I am their parent. I'm here to help them grow. Depending on their age, that's going to mean different things. Give them space to make the decisions that they're making. And if I focus on the relationship, which is my responsibility, then we can create a good relationship, which is good overall. But then also I can hopefully be there in their life to support them, to help them think through things, to help them sometimes give some advice. They might want advice from you at times, but more often than not, let them make their decision and I'll walk along their side, but I won't be pushing them or pulling them in the direction that I think is right for me. I let them live their life. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about parents, and especially as parents of adult children, how you are better off not trying to make the decisions for them when it comes to their relationships uh, and giving them that space and focusing on the relationship itself. And of course, uh, I, I did allude to this, that it's not just an adult-child phenomenon, but something that goes back to all of childhood. So parenting, to me, is the biggest responsibility any person has as far as a relationship goes. It's a very important one, one that we, of course, want to take seriously and only do if we want to do it. There definitely is a movement away from feeling like you're forced to have kids or have to have kids, which I think can be good in the sense that people really become parents because they want to become parents. But in taking that role seriously, we want to look first at what is my intention? What's my responsibility? What is my goal in having this child or in being a parent? And often one of, there's a few factors that'll, that, that'll be there. One is, of course, protecting and keeping them alive. And of course, as a baby, you feel this the most. When you have an infant, they are so fragile and so dependent, completely 100% on you to, to make sure they're okay, keep them alive, protect them, feed them, change them. Everything is going to be up to you to, as parents to take care of that. So we feel that very strongly when they are when they're born. And so that protection, of course, never goes away. You always will feel the responsibility and are responsible to protect your child. But as your child gets older, the different needs and different requirements from you as a parent start to change. As they get older, protection becomes less time consuming in the sense that the child can start to take care of themselves more and more as they get older. But you really are focusing on overall this sense of their growth. So of course, for something to grow, it has to survive and, and be alive and be safe. But when we're looking at those growth needs, which is a big part of childhood life in general, but especially childhood, that's something that often parents can lose sight of when they're so focused on the protection side. And that protection side can extend not just to 
keeping them alive, which of course is at the basic level of protection, but this mindset that my child should not feel pain, which we can understand it in a sense that when pain doesn't feel good in the moment, and if you love something, you don't want that being to experience pain. So we can understand where where it is coming from. And when we look at an infant, that is essentially what you're doing, is you're taking away the discomforts and the pains they have. And the only way the baby can communicate is through crying, and through that crying, you give them what they need, and parents become kind of like these crying whispers in the sense that they start to uh, distinguish between different cries. This is a hungry cry, this is I need to be changed cry, this is a hold me cry, to communicate in some kind of almost like a language to be able to understand what the child and the baby needs. And so in that first year especially, there is this sense that the pains just get taken away. But unfortunately, some parents keep this mindset going forward, that even as their child is growing and now they also need to grow and to go through challenges and to go through things that will help them become stronger for themselves, there can still be this feeling that my role is just to prevent pain. And so I call this the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, which is this mindset that when you're in a situation as a parent, just pick the one that makes the least pain for your child and that's always the right decision. And it can be an interesting guiding force and it can make sense, okay, this is more painful, let's not do it, this is less painful, let's do this one or less uncomfortable. But we can soon recognize the problem that it creates when your child is not allowed to grow because no pain, no gain is not just something for weightlifting, it's really a part of life. That if you don't experience challenges in manageable ways, you don't grow, whatever the age is. And so even no pain, no gain, um, it doesn't mean all pain leads to gain. Even if you're working out, you can do things that tear your muscles, that mess up your ligaments, that do other things that are not good. So it's not all pain is good. It's manageable pain, the pain that you can handle, that you can tolerate, that is actually going to lead to the muscles growing. And similarly, your child recognized that they do need to experience some level of discomfort, some challenges, do some things that they might not like in the moment or might not feel good in the moment if I want them to grow. And so, as I was saying in the last segment, some parents say, oh, I can tell that this person is not a good person for my, my daughter to date or not a good person for my son to date, so I have to get them to stop dating this person. Where actually, it can actually, could be good for them to sometimes date people that are not good for them when they're young. They're experimenting, they're learning about themselves, they are figuring things out. More than likely, those early relationships are going to end in pain. They usually don't marry the first person they date. Most people don't. So that's part of the human experience. But again, if you have this mindset of prevent pain, you think, well, I can tell this is not going to work out, which again is you're making some assumptions there, but let's just say even if you're right, it's going to lead to pain, so I should stop my child from dating this person. That's my role. How can I live with myself as a parent if I don't do this? And that's often how parents will operate. They think, of course, I have to stop the pain. Rather than, I'm also stopping the growth if I do that. I'm also stopping my child from living life. I'm also stopping my child from making decisions for themselves, to then trust themselves. This is something I see very often in young adults, especially in the Iranian community, where parents get overly involved with their kids and want to tell them what to do and 
what not to do and you don't know what you're doing and let me pick this for you let me make this decision for you let me call this person for you let me make this appointment for you let me do all these things for you that the child now even becoming now an adult doesn't think that they can make decisions themselves that they can handle things on their own so again the mindset that i'm preventing pain and discomfort that must be good you have to also look at Am I preventing growth and my child becoming an adult, someone who can stand on their own two feet, someone who can rely on themselves, and someone who can trust themselves? Because if you're making all the decisions for someone, yes, you're taking away discomfort, which might not be good already, but you're also in a direct, but especially indirect way, telling them you can't make the right decisions yourself. You don't know how to do this. I have to do it for you. So then I see these young adults who are now asked to make big decisions about who to date or marry, what career to pick, other ways of living their life that are significant, making some decisions that will impact them and impact their future. And they feel very ill-equipped to make these decisions. Someone always made these decisions for me. And through that told me that I don't really know what I'm, what I'm doing. So the sense of self-doubt is huge. How can I make these super important decisions without trusting myself that I know how to make them because I've been told I don't know how to make them by my parents and how they've interacted with me. So we have to always remember that when we're preventing the pain of our child, could I be also preventing their growth? And this is the big question I always ask, which we also have to do with ourselves, but especially as a parent, can I differentiate between the pain that leads to damage and the pain that leads to growth? The pain that leads to damage we want to avoid the pain that leads to growth we want to go into. If it's individually, that's what we want to do. And with our child, we want to do the same thing. Prevent the pain that is damaging to them. So if they're in a toxic environment, if someone is abusive, if they're getting hurt physically in a way that's not good, we prevent those things. But if they are having a conversation that doesn't feel good, but they can get through it, if they have a fight with their teacher, we don't have to remove them from the class. We can say, can we go talk with the teacher, have a conversation, even though it's uncomfortable, even though I know you won't like it and you'd rather we either leave the school or the parents go talk to the, the teacher without the child. How do we encourage you to go towards that growth that doesn't feel good? One, so you grow and two, so you realize that you can handle more things so you continue to grow. Because unfortunately, what happens is when we are constantly avoiding pain, avoiding doing the things that seem difficult, it makes us feel like we can't handle those things. So the next time they come up, we avoid them again because we go, oh, I can't do that. There's no way I can handle that. Even though you can, if you give yourself the chance to experience those pains and those discomforts. So again, we have to ask ourselves, what's my goal here as a parent? It's not just to prevent pain. It's also to help my child grow to become stronger and to trust themselves. And so from a young age, you have to give them that feeling and really give it to them in the sense of not just feeling it, but it's part of their life. They make decisions for themselves. Now, it doesn't mean all the decisions. It doesn't mean you're out the window, but with certain things, you want to give them that space to make a decision and then live with the consequences. Even you can talk it through with them. Oh, I'm wondering what made you make that decision or what are you thinking? But then show them you trust them. You really, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Do it. Let's try it that way. Let's see what happens. And then they try it and it doesn't work. Oh, it didn't work. Well, what happened? Let's talk about it. Rather than I told you, so you should have done this. I knew. I knew this was the right way. I knew you should have done it that way. This doesn't help your child grow. It's just you punishing them and trying to control their life and what they're going through. 
Now control, where does this come from? We, of course, want to control what happens in our own lives, but especially with our kids' lives, we don't want them to be unhappy. We don't want them to get hurt. We don't want them to experience certain things. So we think we have to control what happens to them. But the truth of the matter is we, of course, can't control it. And this is what happens. People try to control who their kids date, and then they realize they can't or what they study or whatever they're going to do. You don't control them. All you do is you damage and destroy your relationship with them as they get older. And you might even damage or destroy them. They become weaker and doubt themselves more. So as hard as it is, we do have to accept that we don't have as much control as would be comforting to us. In our own lives, we can't control things that happen to us. There is luck that happens to us, things in health that we can't control. We do everything we can to control what we can control, but we realize so much of it is out of our control. And with our kids, we realize, yes, it can be a comforting way to think we can control things to make sure they're okay, but we realize that a good life is not a life where someone else is controlling it. So if you are making the quote-unquote right decisions for your child, it doesn't mean you're doing the right thing for them. Even if it prevents their pain, even if it pushes them in the right direction, even if it pushes them towards the right pain, but you force them to do it. When you make the decisions for your child, you are actually not helping them. So we have to reduce this need for that control and for that comfort that my child is not experiencing pain, is going through things in a way that feels right to me, and give them the space to become their own person, to trust themselves when it comes to making decisions, to believe in themselves, that one, they can make good decisions, and two, they can deal with the consequences. Even if it doesn't work out, it's going to be okay. Not, no, 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 you can't do that because what if this happens? It's like, okay, let it happen. Let them see that they can handle those things. And so first we have to deal with our own anxiety and wanting to control and uh, dealing with that uncertainty and to give them that same sense that it's going to be okay. Give them the space to explore, to fall down if they do and get back up because we trust that they can make the right decisions. And even when the decision leads to them falling down, we know that they can get, they can get themselves back up. All right, let's go to another commercial break. 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about giving your children the space to experience discomforts, experience the pains that lead to growth. And I alluded to something about, or I mentioned to- tolerating certain discomforts, tolerating pain. And that's what I wanted to talk about in this segment, because to me, one of the biggest markers of mental health, or one of the things that contributes to our mental health, is our ability to withstand not feeling okay. So this is sometimes called frustration tolerance or distress tolerance. And this might seem a bit puzzling, because usually if you think of mental health most people think of being happy feeling good and it does involve some of that of course that's part of it feeling really really bad is not going to be uh, a sign of mental health if you're feeling bad all the time but you will feel bad sometimes and that is part of life and so what we can see is that if we are not able to tolerate feeling bad which is an inevitability of life of relationships of just being a human being then we are not going to be able to make 
good decisions in our life or we won't be able to tolerate the things that even lead to growth, tolerate the things that lead to uh, healthy relationships, like having conversations that we might not like, doing things that we don't always like the most, but we can tolerate. And just even in being with ourselves, we won't make the best decisions. So feeling bad and being able to tolerate feeling bad is a big part of mental health and our overall well-being. Because if I am not willing to tolerate feeling bad, then I'm more likely to do a few things. One is to go away from things that lead to growth. So I need to do something for myself, whether it's studying or, uh, you know, calling someone or having uh, a conversation with someone. I won't be able to do those things that help myself. And in a relationship, I won't be able to tolerate the things that make me uncomfortable, even the anxieties that come up. And this is actually something I, I think we're seeing more and more. We always see people avoid um, things that make them uncomfortable. Avoidance is a big, big, big defense mechanism that we all employ to different degrees. But I think with the advent of technology and different um, things that are available to us now, it's a lot easier to avoid things. So you don't have to leave your home. And I think the pandemic, unfortunately, it did a lot of things. But one of the things it also did is made people get more comfortable in their own homes. That could be partially good and spending more time with each other, but also made them more comfortable of not interacting with people face to face. We couldn't see people. We did everything over Zoom and FaceTime and call and text, which was already a trend we were going towards, but became even more strong during the pandemic and almost became the exclusive way we were communicating. But we can see that people still, although I know we're always somehow still in the pandemic, but as things open up or there is opportunities to be more in person, some people still choose to be alone or prefer that in some degree, or they prefer even to have a relationship that's not so real in a variety of ways. Even we see uh, products like robot partners and boyfriends and girlfriends, and it seems kind of like a joke, but there's a lot of reality. And I've even seen some people when they talk about it, they say, oh, it's good because, you know, the, the robot partner never like talks back to you or says something you don't like or, you know, bothers you in some way. And all those things are true but they'll never allow you to feel the goodness of a relationship either. Because again, here's another part where we see no pain, no gain. If you're not willing to withstand the, the closeness that comes and the discomforts that can come from getting close, you don't get to feel that closeness either. So yeah, you can you know, marry a robot but, and you'll never have a fight. You might just have issues related to recharging, but you won't feel that level of intimacy that you can have with another human being. We even see this in sexual fantasies. Sometimes when you ask people about their fantasies, and this was uh, for me really first illustrated when I read uh, Stephen Mitchell's book, Can Love Last? There's this sense that, oh, you know, the, the sex I have with my partner, it's, it's whatever it is, is kind of boring, but the sex in my fantasies, it's so crazy and wild. And I can imagine things that make it so much better than the real sex. But then when you actually think about it and you look a little bit deeper in your fantasy, you completely control everything. So it's actually not that wild and crazy because it's very controlled. You have, you can imagine things that seem outlandish or something that you might not experience in real life, but 
because it's a fantasy, you know that you can make it go a certain way. There's nothing to worry about. Whereas in an actual interaction with your romantic partner, because you are just one person controlling yourself, or even not even completely controlling, but have more influence and control over yourself, but have no control over the other person, that's a lot more anxiety provoking. So in a way, that's a lot more wild and crazy because you don't know what's going to happen if you actually allow for the space for both people to express themselves. But we think that the fantasy is, is crazier or more amazing. Just like the fantasy people have in romantic relationships can be the same way. Oh, we're going to be so close and I'm going to have this and it's going to be this way and that way. But the real truth is a lot of times people that have these dreams of being close and so in love with someone are too afraid to actually let it happen because when it's actually happening it's not in the story in your mind where you controlled the the beginning middle and end you can't control it you have to allow for a lot of it to happen out of your control and that can be very scary so we can see that we often avoid things that make us uncomfortable which is understandable that's just a constant experience we have that we go towards the things that feel good. We avoid the things that don't feel good. And so we have to consciously be aware of this to go more towards the things that make us uncomfortable that we feel like will help us grow. And one of the important factors is going back to what I introduced for this segment is your ability to tolerate not feeling okay. What is your frustration tolerance or your distress tolerance? okay, I'm about to have this conversation and I don't like it because I know it's not going to feel good and it might even lead to an argument or we have to talk about insecurities or I might get emotional in a way that feels uncomfortable. But because I think it's good for our relationship, I'm willing to go into that discomfort. If I just leave my live my life with the mindset of what's easiest and least comfortable, well, we'll just continue watching TV and I won't bring up the issue. Or if my partner brings it up, I'll say, oh, come on. Like, let's not talk about it. What's the point? Let's just enjoy our night. So the night might be easier and more enjoyable if you avoid the conversation, but your relationship will also become weaker and less close if you avoid that conversation. So it's something to ask yourself, how well do you think you tolerate not feeling okay? What's your reaction to this? And related to that, what's your reaction when someone else is not okay? And they're usually highly correlated, but sometimes people are have an easier time either with their own feelings or with other people's feelings, but there usually going to be some relationship there. And this is why when someone cries, what do we say? Stop crying or you don't need to cry. And we think it's just because of them that we want them to feel okay. But really a lot of it is because of us. We can't tolerate how we feel when the person is crying or it starts to make us feel uncomfortable. So how much can you tolerate those not so pleasant, uncomfortable feelings when you're crying or someone else is crying? Or you're feeling upset. And the reason why when we look at just ourselves, this could be so important is that oftentimes when you're not feeling good, there's things you can do to help yourself. But usually the things that help you feel better, the faster they work, usually the worse they are for you. It's not going to be exactly that way. Sometimes you see your friend and you get a hug and it might make you feel much better immediately. But the things that people often turn to, which can turn into addictions and compulsive behaviors, things like drugs and alcohol, sex, shopping, gambling, those types of things that quickly give you an excitement and take you out of that uh, negative mood are usually unhealthy things. And so if you can't tolerate feeling not okay, 
you are much more prone to go towards these types of behaviors. Uh, I don't feel good, so what can I do? How can I get away from this? Rather than just sitting with it. Sometimes that's all we can do is just sit with that negative behavior, that negative feeling and recognize very importantly that it doesn't feel good, but I won't feel this way forever because feelings don't last forever. They could come and go. We might have a mood that lasts a while, but even that is not going to be totally fixed and stable. So really it's, can I uh, tolerate it? I remember an exercise that was taught to me um, in some kind of a, it was like a continuing education type of course years ago. And I think I actually did it on the, the radio. I'm not going to do it today. It's kind of funny to do it on the radio, but it's basically to hold an ice cube in your hand. And so, uh, and let it melt. So, you know, the, the instructor said, we're going to do this and it's something you can just like keep in mind, but you know, you hold the ice cube in your hand and it melts and it starts to, to hurt first. It's just very cold. And then it even hurts. And you know, she had assured us that, you know, it's going to hurt, but you're going to, nothing permanent or bad happens. So again, this goes back to this pain that can lead to damage. It's not going to damage you in some way, just it's not going to feel good. And so you hold the ice cube in your hand and it starts melting and it doesn't feel good. And your hand feels really painful in, in pain. And you could do lots of things. Sometimes you go towards the pain. If you want think about it even more, sometimes you might distract yourself from it momentarily. You could do a lot of different things, but essentially the ice cube eventually melts and becomes water and then now it's not so cold and and you know you're done and you you get through it but the really powerful message there is that it was very painful even you know when you do it you like like oh this is stupid maybe i should stop doing it like okay what's what's the point of this or this is hurting maybe i'm hurting my hand you know i'm not going to do this so there's these uh impulses to stop because it doesn't feel good and you want to stop that but when you go through it and it finishes there's this really powerful sense that, okay, that didn't feel good, but I got through it. It's, it was okay. It didn't feel good for a little while. I could handle it not feeling good. And I knew it was going to end. I saw the ice melting. So I did know that the end was going to be close. Maybe it takes a minute, two minutes, but it was going to happen. And so it could be important for us to recognize that so much of our well-being will be if we can tolerate those not so good feelings in our life. You want to do something fun, but you have something to do. If you just go based on what feels good, you're not going to do the things that are better for you long term. So can I sit with these feelings? And if we go to the extreme, unfortunately, when people are suicidal, of course, there is extreme feelings of pain and and hopelessness. And it's not to minimize that, oh, if they just wait a few minutes, it's going to go away. So I don't want to downplay the intense suffering that people can go through, which can make them consider suicide and then act on that. But one of the things we will say, it's kind of one of these cliche things is that this, this feeling will be temporary, but that action is permanent if you, if you uh, commit suicide. And so to have some, if we can have some faith, and that's actually why hopelessness is such a uh, big concern when it comes to suicide is that if the person has lost hope, so if you feel bad and you're hopeless that it's going to get better that can get to a dangerous place because then you don't have this feeling that, okay, it doesn't feel good, but it will feel better. It's just painful. You're in misery and you think this is the the only thing I'm going to feel. It's never going to stop. And so why should I think it's going to stop? And in that mindset, unfortunately, sometimes it's hard to see the good or the potential for good and we get stuck there. And that's why when someone is suicidal, we want to help them because Our understanding, it's an assumption, is that they don't feel good and they want to take an action, but I don't think this action is the best for them 
One, I want to protect their life. And two, I don't think they're going to feel this way. I have hope that they're going to feel better. I might have hope for them that they don't have. And so I might have to be the one that intervenes in a way with that hope to protect them, to take care of them, to then see what help we can get for them and what can happen for them to to feel better in the long term. But in that moment, there isn't this sense that it's going to get better. So if we downscale that to most of our lives, it's recognizing that when we don't feel good, it can sometimes feel like it's going to be forever or it lasts too long or I can't handle it. But it's just like, let's say if you were going to put your head under water or uh, like I said, with this ice example, you can build your endurance for what you can tolerate. So even when we talk about having these uncomfortable conversations, what most people recognize is that let's say you're in a relationship and you haven't had any of these uncomfortable conversations, the first ones are going to be very difficult and very uncomfortable. But if you keep doing it, you feel less uncomfortable. It doesn't mean you necessarily will ever look forward to it. You might over time because you see how good it is and at the end you might feel good after an uncomfortable conversation if it is handled respectfully and both people are open and and you get to a good place. But you still might not ever look forward to it, but you might be less uncomfortable. Your tolerance can grow just like your endurance can grow. If you're going for a run, if you're doing something to push your body, you may be at first like, oh, I can only do it for 30 seconds. I only last a minute. But then if you keep pushing yourself, your strength and your endurance will grow and you'll be able to tolerate more. So we want to uh, first recognize where where is my tolerance when it comes to frustration, distress, not feeling good. But then also give ourselves some challenges to push that, to tolerate a little bit more. When you feel bad, what actually usually ends up happening is when people have things like addictions, they'll feel bad. And without even realizing, they might go towards that addiction. So they might go towards the refrigerator or towards their cigarettes or towards whatever it is that they do. You might even unconsciously feel this pull because you don't feel good internally. You're experiencing it and you just start going into this habit or routine of what's going to make me feel better. And this is why, even if it's not in a level of addiction, but we want to try to have that awareness and be conscious that, oh, I'm not feeling good and I feel myself being pulled to do something about it but I want to do something that I'll feel good about long-term that doesn't have negative consequences. What can I do? And as I was saying, oftentimes the things we do, if you are, let's say, used to taking some kind of drug that within a minute or even faster might make you feel good, if you now say, well, I'm going to go for a walk, a walk is going to have a much slower impact and is going to have a much less intense impact. So it can be tough to accept that, but this is why the tolerating of the discomfort could be so important. It's like, okay, I know I'm going to go for a walk. I'll feel a bit better. I'm not going to feel all the way better. And yes, if I use that drug, I would feel better instantly, but I know that that's going to hurt me in the long term. So I will tolerate this uncomfortable feeling. I will tolerate it slowly getting better rather than quickly disappearing because I know that's better for me long term. And so the more we can endure, the more we can build on this frustration tolerance, that's why I'm saying it's so important for our, our overall mental health. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I wanted to talk about resolving our past issues, or especially in relationships, working on things that have happened in the past. And oftentimes we have we can have the mindset of, well, it was in the past, so we shouldn't have to worry about it anymore. Or 
deal with it. And this can also be related to things like, well, time heals things and time heals all wounds, which can be true, but time alone doesn't heal a wound. It can, depending on what it is, but very often it's time plus what you do with that time or what's done in that time. So for example, if you break a leg, it's going to take time for it to get better, but not just time. And no matter what you do, it's going to get better. You have to first rest it, and you obviously can't put more pressure on it. You might need a cast and you might need some medical treatment, but time itself does not heal that wound. You can't just say, well, you broke your leg. It's going to get better because it requires time. Sometimes it can make people think time is sufficient. So time is necessary, but not necessary and sufficient. It depends on what you do with that time. And so this can actually relate to what I was talking about in the last segment, because very often the reason why people avoid dealing with the past pain in a relationship is the discomfort that will come with having that type of a conversation or working on what happened in the past. Some people say, oh, come on, like, just forget about it or let's just move forward. You hear that a lot. Let's move forward. I don't want to be focused on the past. And so this is where uh, there's a lot of sayings that make sense and can work in some context, but of course they can be overgeneralized. So yeah, you want to be moving forward. That does make sense. But until we figure out the things in our past and heal what's happened in the past, we won't be able to move forward as well. So if we continue this uh, broken leg analogy, if you break your leg and you don't heal it, yeah, you maybe can keep going forward in some way, but you won't be able to go as easily, as strongly, and with less pain. It'll be more painful. So uh, when, when I talk to couples or any kind of relationship and we look at some past issue, it's not that I think talking about the past is fun or I want to stay in the past. It's that I, I know that if we don't heal our past, we won't be able to go, go forward as well, as strongly in a good way. So another analogy is something like, uh, you know, if you have a leaky faucet, if there's like some issue with the pipe underneath your sink and you think, okay, well, sometimes what happens is, okay, let's just not use that sink for a while because it's, it's uh, leaking. But then if you come back to that sink five years later, if you never dealt with that pipe, it doesn't mean now it's working because it was happening in the past or that issue was in the past. So we have to be aware that when we have a relationship with someone, the way I like to think of it is that you, the way you feel about that person in a rela any re relationship, but let's say especially in a romantic relationship, it's in some ways like the sum total of all of your experiences with that person. And of course, on top of that, it's going to get affected by things like, you know, um, cultural issues of what you should think about a partner, about a man, woman, whatever it might be. There are other factors as well that will impact how two people feel about each other and how they feel about the relationship. But more than anything, it's the sum total of those interactions that you have that will create this very complex dynamic of how you feel. Because even if you're very in love with someone and have a good relationship, there will still see, be some pains in that relationship or some hurt. So it's like we can imagine this kind of a ball made of thread and there are mostly good threads if you have a good relationship, but there's still some painful ones as well. There's still some ones that are not as pleasant that are part of that thread that creates this connection between you and this other person you and whoever it might be, but again, focusing on a romantic relationship, hopefully there's many threads and many positive ones. And so this is why if you first meet someone and one of the things they do to you is negative, 
you might not want to even continue connecting with them because there aren't a lot of positive threads. Or maybe another way of thinking about it is each time you um, have a bad, uh, you know, kind of interaction, it's like cutting a thread. So there's not much left keeping you connected to one another. There's not a lot there. You might just not continue. But if your partner of 20 years does that, it still might hurt. It might even hurt more deeply because of the relationship, depending on what's being done. But your relationship will likely be able to handle the same thing that would end a relationship that is just starting because there's more there. There's more to connect you with one another. And so when we are working on past issues in a relationship, what we're trying to do is reduce some of these threads. Now, analogies always can have some value to help us visualize things and can have some emotional significance when we see things in a certain way, but they also can be um, limiting because you know, if I'm going too far down this thread, pun intended, of this analogy, it might get hard to to make sense of what I'm trying to say next. But essentially that at times when you have these big issues that are there early in your relationship, it will affect the way you feel going forward or a certain degree of closeness. So another way I like to think of this is like, it's like you're hugging your partner but these really big negative things that have happened, it's like it's something between you when you're hugging that can, first of all, make it so you're not as close because there's something in between you and might even make it hurt when you're hugging as it's going into both of your bodies. It's pressing in a certain way, digging into you. So it doesn't feel as good even when you hug each other. And so it can impact that feeling that you have with one another. So if you want to keep your relationship healthy and happy and feeling good, you're going to need to face these past pains and the ones that are coming up. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. If you are just enjoying your day and someone brings up something from a while ago, it doesn't feel good, obviously, and you prefer not to talk about it, but it can be very meaningful in helping your relationship going forward. Now, a little aside here, because sometimes you'll see in a relationship, someone will keep bringing up something. Now, it could be that it hasn't been resolved, but sometimes people don't want something to get resolved, which can sound strange. But sometimes in a relationship, if you especially are afraid of your partner not loving you or wanting you or that they might leave, we at times like to feel like our partner owes us something because it can feel like because they're indebted to us, they can't go. So, you know, how dare you leave me? You still owe me from this thing that you did before. And so you'll sometimes see that someone in a relationship might not want to forgive their partner. So I've worked with clients, and this is why sometimes I'll even ask, what do you think it would take for you to be able to forgive your partner for what has happened? And sometimes they'll say something and those things will happen, but they say, oh, no, no, I still, still don't forgive them. And it could be a lot of things, but one of the things that can be going on is that if I still have this thing, it's almost like my insurance that you still owe me that you won't go because there's a fear that you won't stay just for me. You might leave if I let go of this thing. Of course, it could also be that you might forgive them for what happened, but it's hard for you to trust them because of how they hurt you. That also is very real and can happen. But I don't want to make it seem that anytime someone brings up the past, it's always the right thing. Sometimes they don't want to work on it themselves. They want it to stay unresolved. However, if you are in a relationship and your partner does bring something up from your past, I hope you will be open to discussing it, open to understanding it. If your partner is hurt by something you've done, whether it's now or 10 years ago, 
I would hope your intention is let's work on it. I don't want you to carry this pain from something I did and something in our relationship. Now, when you also bring up whatever happened in the past, sometimes it can be more direct. Someone hurt the other person can feel more straightforward. But often what can happen is we recognize that both people have contributed at some level. It doesn't mean it's 50-50. At some level to whatever whatever it was that was going on, whatever the issue was, likely you both have contributed to some degree for it happening, for it being dealt with in a certain way, or not dealt with, whatever it might be. You likely have both contributed, so it's important to keep that in mind. And to go into the conversation, of course, there's at times intense feelings, but recognizing that blame is not going to get us anywhere. To say, you are this way, or you did this, or you're so that way, or whatever it might be. Yes, those feelings might come up initially, but to work through what's going on between two people, the blame is not likely to be the path that gets you to a better place. What can be very important is to talk about your feelings. And this is another one of those cliches in therapy where we encourage partners to use I statements because you want your partner to know what you felt, what you experienced, what was it like for you, whatever it is that they did, what did it make you feel? Because that can be much more important than focusing on is your partner a bad person or a liar or you know labeling in some way which won't get us anywhere or they're guilty or they should be punished in some way. That is not going to get us to a place of resolution and closeness. That's just going to push you further away. But if you can express this is how I was hurt and in, in more detail even to express what it meant to you. Sometimes we might even make connections to our past. It doesn't mean that we only got hurt because it's something we're sensitive about, but it might even make it more intense. You know, you did this and it reminded me of something I have gone through or something that happened in my family, so it hurt even more. There can be lots of, of things related to it, but the point is to get to a space of more mutual understanding and of a sense of letting go of that resentment. And one of the, or the fastest way we can reduce the harm or to heal a past wound in a relationship is for the person that hurt you to apologize to you and a genuine apology. And because it's just a a minute or two left for the show today, I won't get into some of those details of what could distinguish a genuine apology from one that's not genuine and one that's not so sincere. But when someone who has hurt us acknowledges their wrongdoing and how they hurt us and owns it and takes that responsibility, that can be the fastest path that we have to healing a past wound. And this is something that as a therapist, when I work with someone individually, very often what we're doing is trying to heal some of these past relational wounds that they've experienced, but unfortunately often doing it just with me and them, which can happen and can work, but I know that it's not as fast and as effective as if they were able to have that person acknowledge what they did wrong. Sometimes that's not possible. The person might not be alive. Sometimes the person doesn't think it's their fault. So having the conversation could make things even worse. There's a lot of things that can get in the way of getting that, but that is going to be the most uh, efficient way, the best way, and the most healing way to get past something that is ex- that we have experienced in a relational way. So owning what you've done has to be genuine. Don't just say sorry to make the other person feel okay because that usually doesn't work. But if you can genuinely recognize what you've done wrong and own that, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. You maybe did a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're a bad partner. It just means you did a bad thing, which 
any person has done. If you've been in a relationship in a long time and think you've never done something hurtful to your partner, you probably are not looking closely enough at what you're doing. But owning it in a genuine way can be very healing. And the goal isn't just, okay, we want to talk about this past issue to talk about this past issue. It's that the issue or this past event is in between the two of you still, and it's preventing your relationship from being as strong as it can be. So I'm very much in favor of moving forward, but my understanding is that if we don't heal the past, we can't move forward in as healthy and happy as a way as we can, unless we were uh, able to resolve those past issues. So be open to that, recognize that they're not comfortable conversations, but if you love your partner, you love your relationship, you will take those risks and take those steps.